Did you notice Jennifer Cannon was back? She flew out just to be with us this morning. Anytime you want. And Hubby's here too. I don't know, somewhere. Listen to the next couple of minutes if you listen to nothing else. There are two services next Sunday morning. Okay, 8.45 and 10.30. So that they can both be the same length, we'll give them the same amount of time. 8.45, 10.30, you can stay for both, but we don't recommend it. We need the parking spaces. So uh, come and enjoy. It's, it's Resurrection Sunday, and we cannot wait. Uh, before that, on Friday night at 7, uh, we are going to be uh, celebrating the Lord's table. And so we'll put the table right in the middle. We'll put all the chairs surrounding it. And it's, it's usually just a wonderful time of celebrating with real elements. I mean, not the little plastic cups. So uh, we're going we're gonna to go for it this weekend. And, and, and so we're going to uh, do that on Friday at 7. If you want to help us reset the chairs, put out the banners and flags, we need some joy in life. We want to celebrate next Sunday. You can come at 10 o'clock on Saturday, and we'll put you to work. If you want the latest and greatest, don't forget of all things Peninsula, sign up for the update. You can do that on the Connect. As an extra bonus this week, if you sign up this morning, you get a full week of devotionals. Ooh. Yeah, I don't care. So you're going to get it. Everybody on the list gets it. So if you sign up today, you got yours this morning. I don't know if it was any good or not, but we'll see. We'll see if you like it or not. Uh, a little risky for me, but uh, it, it'll come every morning tomorrow at 5.30 in the morning. So because I know some people get up early. That's a little early for the pastor. So sign up for the Connect. We'll get you on that list um, as soon as possible. So this morning, we are tracing some Polaroid pictures as we go through uh, and prepare for um, um, Passion Week. Um, and so we have been looking at these, just some glimpses, some old worn out photos. And so I was going to do a different one today, but I had a special request and I'm not really trying to curry favor with my physical therapist so he'll make it easier on me. I couldn't be why I chose this one. It's actually a better one. He had a great idea. So we're going to, we, we have um, explored the bronze serpent from Moses. Look, believe, and be healed. We, last Sunday morning, we looked at the story in Genesis 22 of um, Abraham offering his son Isaac where he had to believe God and it be counted for him as righteousness. And in that offering of Isaac, in obedience to God's command, we learned that we have been provided a substitute. Believe it and be counted as righteous. And we learned that God also asks us to open our hands too. What are we clinging to so much? And what is he asking us to, to open and give to him? This morning, we go back even further in time to a place where it's really not a whole lot possible to go back even further. We're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we'll center on one verse, and that is this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. <clears throat> my voice is weird, isn't it? It's, I've heard it from my wife that it's been that way for a while. Um... 
I, I could use some water because I drank all my water already. Um, Danny will get me a bottle of water. Um, I was in the middle of a verse. That wasn't very nice of me, was it? Let's read the verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. First promise given after they sinned, after they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. The first gospel sermon ever preached is right here in Genesis 3.15. And these words are spoken by God and they contain this first hint of redemption. And really, the entire story of redemption unfolds out of Genesis 3.15. The acorn contains within it a mighty oak. That's what's going on here. And though you might not see it at first, Christ is there, the cross, the plan of salvation. Because Jesus is the ultimate offspring of the woman who would one day come and crush the serpent's ugly head. In the process, his heel would be bruised on the cross. And this verse predicts that Jesus would win the victory over Satan, but it would come at a very personally painful win. But all of that's in the future, as he spoke these words, and neither Adam nor Eve, they couldn't really fully know what these words would mean one day. Just come on up here, it's okay. Just toss it. It doesn't have a label and it's half drank. It's been opened. What? Okay, but did you drink some of it? Somebody did. I don't know. Drink or don't drink? Oh, shoot. Dapple, oh, Dapple, you said drink? No. <laughs> Maybe you have to be in the room. Sorry if you're online. Let's read the text. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, the intro, the setting of it. Now the serpent was much more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat it from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I think we have to understand the context as we begin this journey. Because this Polaroid moment, it adds such a depth to the story of our salvation that we need to understand its biblical and its historical context. Before studying Genesis 3, I think we need to reflect on the setting of Genesis 1 and 2. The setting, the biblical setting. Genesis 1 serves as a commentary on the fall of man. I'm not sure I'd ever thought of it that way before. But according to Genesis 1, all of creation came into existence through one thing. What? The spoken word of God. 
God spoke creation into existence. The key word in, in Genesis 1 is, and God said. And yet, it is the spoken word of God that Satan first questioned when they were asked, you know, and he, he denied it in Genesis 3. Why should you believe God's word? Well, only because it's been God's word that brought everything into existence that you see. The God who said from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat is the same God who said, let there be whatever. Genesis 2 is also more significant when read in light of chapter 3. In chapter 3, Satan convinced the woman that God was holding something back that was good from her. He's, he's holding this one thing back. And when Satan says, well, let's have an alternate interpretation of what's really going on here, Eve becomes convinced of her need to know good and evil. And so she's compelled to take and eat the fruit. But all of chapter 2 denies what Eve assumed to be true about God. Genesis 2 is very clear. God provides everything that you need. Whatever you're lacking, whatever is necessary, God provides. Genesis 2 describes the creation of the garden, describes the creation of Adam and Eve once again. And it all points to a God who will provide whatever is lacking and necessary. Genesis 2.4, what's not there? There's no garden. It describes then the creation of that garden. There's no shrubs, there's no trees. There's no rain to water the plants. There's no man to cultivate the land. So what does God do? God creates a garden because it was needed. He adds a river for irrigation and he creates a man to cultivate it. There was a need then for that man to have a helper. Couldn't do this all alone. So God made his perfect mate. At every point of legitimate need, God met it. How dare Satan suggest, or Eve actually believe, that God had withheld something from her which she needed. All of Genesis 2 says that doesn't happen. You see, man's disobedience in the garden is the fruit of unbelief, just as his obedience would have been the fruit of faith. Why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil forbidden? Our text indicates this fascinating twist in Eve's thinking. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil enabled one to know good and evil, verse 22 of chapter 3. And Eve deceptively believed that they were both necessary and beneficial. I need to know that. But it was neither. She didn't. It wasn't necessary for her to, to, to know that. Eve only needed to know what? That God had forbidden that fruit. Had Eve trusted God, she would have found that his word, what he said, was sufficient. She only needed to know who said don't eat the fruit, not why she didn't need to eat the fruit. And there's a principle here. God desires from us an obedience of faith. Such obedience is not based on our understanding or why we're to act as God requires, but 
simply because he does. The obedience of faith is based on our faith in God, not on our own understanding of why God wants us to do this or that. It's how parents teach their children. You cannot teach a toddler why they shouldn't stick their finger in the electrical outlet. You teach them not to do it because you said so, and they need to trust your word. To me, that's the biblical setting for our text. Now it's more specifically the time and place. Well, we're, out, we're near the beginning of history, obviously. Genesis 3.15 takes place right after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and, and sin has entered paradise. And what's their impulse? Their impulse is to hide from God. I don't want to see him anymore. And the second impulse is just to make excuses. She did it. She did it. They just blame shift really well. No one is willing to stand up and say, I did it. It's my fault and I take responsibility. And suddenly, paradise is not so beautiful. Eden has been ruined by the entrance of sin. Shadows begin to fall as they contemplate what they've done. The smell of death is in the air. And nearby, the, 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 the tree, the serpent, just lays there kind of quietly. I think he's the only one happy at this moment. His plan succeeded. He's thrilled with what's happening because this was what he wanted from the beginning. He wanted to humiliate God and ruin paradise and prove to all creation they're never going to do what you want them to do. There's no race of beings that could be ever trusted to fully and freely obey God. Left to their own, even in paradise, they're going to disobey. See, the, the persons involved, as God surveys this moral wreckage of the fall, he begins to pass judgment. And he begins where sin began, which is where? With the serpent, the first one he addresses. He's going to come to the woman. He's going to come to the man beyond our scope this morning. Genesis 3.15 is not directed at you and me, though it applies to us. God is the speaker, and he's talking to the serpent. And in two short verses, God passes judgment on the serpent for his part in the fall of humanity. First, he is cursed above every other animal. Second, he's have to kind of crawl on his belly forever. And third, he's going to eat dust all the days of his life. Fourth, the bad news. The bad news for the serpent is there's no good news. <laughs> it's all bad. God doesn't ask him what he did or why he did it. I mean, he, he's already judged Satan when he tossed him out of heaven. There's no extenuating circumstances to, to consider. There's no motions to file before the judge. You know, there's no high-priced lawyers to argue his case. And even though Genesis 3.15 contains the first mention of the gospel, there is no ray of hope for the serpent. None. He's excluded from the plan of salvation completely. For the serpent, there's only a curse and a public judgment. In some ways, the fall really marks his finest hour, and it's all downhill from there. When he deceived Eve and Adam chose to follow her, he wrecked God's plan, and he gained the world for himself. And for a few short hours, I don't know how long it was, he was the victor. He won the battle, but it didn't last long, and it's been going downhill ever since. So with that understanding of the context, let's consider what Genesis 3.15 asks and what it predicts for Satan and for us. 
Number two, then, what this verse predicts. You can summarize what it says in three short phrases. Number one, the first one, A, is endless conflict. He says, God says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be animosity. One translation says, I will set a feud. Another one says, I, there will be war. And God takes responsibility for that state of affairs. He says, this is the way it's going to be. First, Eve and the serpent, they're never going to get along. If he thought that by deceiving Eve and getting her to sin, he'd have her in his hip pocket and he can do whatever he wants, he made a mistake. Because we all like to live in paradise. And now there's no paradise, so we're not going to like that person. Only hard days, and every hard day reminds us to hate the serpent fiercely. But the deeper meaning lies with the NIV, what it translates as offspring. Hebrew is the word seed, referring to generations yet unborn. Everybody who traces their heritage back to Eve. That seed or the offspring is men and women of faith in every generation who've believed God. It's eventually going to turn up in Abel, in Enoch, in Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, and Gideon, and David, and Esther, eventually the person of the Savior. But Satan has his seed too. And throughout history, in every generation, in every country, in every city and village and tribe and clan and family, Satan has his people. Started with Cain, who killed Abel. It's the wicked generation of Noah's day to the pharaohs who opposed Moses and the Canaanites who mocked Joshua. It includes the pagan peoples of antiquity who, who sided with Goliath and scoffed at God and made fun of David, who threw Daniel in the lion's den. Who did that? The ungodly lion. Who hated the prophets and murdered them in cold blood? The ungodly lion. And in the days of Jesus, when he was born, it was the ungodly line. It was Herod who tried to kill him. And when he grew up, the Pharisees opposed him and plotted to take his life. Satan even infiltrated the, center, the inner circle of Jesus and convinced Judas to betray him. And when he was arrested, men stood in line to lie about him. And when Pilate offered him up for release, oh, they shouted, Barabbas, give us Barabbas and kill him. It's the ungodly line of Satan. It's the real conflict of the ages, the struggle between those who believe in God and those who do not. And since, ever since Genesis 3.15, there is a fundamental divide in the human race. From that point onward, there's really two humanities. The one who says there is no God or makes God in their own imagination or tries to come to know God in, his, in, in their own way. And the other humanity comes to the true God in God's way. And you see, there's no neutral ground. There's no in-between. There's no gray in that. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, they've opposed each other continuously across the centuries and it's continuing to this day. Genesis 3.15, it predicts our modern world. And the church becomes controversial 
when we know which side we're on. Because most in the world think the highest debt that you owe is to yourself. You need to seek your own happiness. The other side, the other side says, no. You owe everything to your creator. Your loyalty, your submission. And therein lies the heart of modern conflict. Remember what Jesus said, John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Jesus never said, you know, they're not going to criticize you. He just says, don't worry about it. Being hated by the world is part of the continual conflict that goes back to Genesis 3.15, endless conflict. Second thing God says is there will be a temporary defeat. You will strike his heel. Ever had a heel spur? Pulled your Achilles tendon? I've heard that can be very, very painful. We normally don't think, think about our heel till we start having a problem. And what happens? You end up on crutches, you take painkillers, maybe surgery. See, heel trouble slows you down, but it doesn't kill you. You can live with heel problems even though you have to hobble around. If you do that, come see me. I know a great physical therapist. He's wonderful. We'll get you in touch with him. But when our text says he will strike his heel, it has a twofold reference. First, it's to the fact that, that in this life, Satan, he does continue to win the battle from now and, now and then. Sometimes we're wounded by discouragement or criticism or anger. Sometimes we've got some cherished plan that goes astray. Our goals somehow get frustrated. And if you want proof that Satan wins a temporary, visit, a temporary um, victory, you go to a cemetery. Every grave testifies to his infernal power. Most likely we'll all spend time there unless Christ intervenes. So this text, it reminds me, life's not a bed of roses. Not only is there this continual conflict, but the bad guys, they, they win a fair number of the battles. There's another meaning, I think, to this as well. When Christ died on the cross, Satan struck his heel. There were nails down there, by the way. His hands and his feet, maybe through his, maybe through his heels. On Friday, about sundown, when they took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. On Sunday morning, uh, different story. The victor walks out of the grave. Listen to these words from Spurgeon. Look at your master and your king upon the cross, all disdained with blood and dust. There was his heel, most cruelly bruised. When they take down that precious body and wrap it in fair white linen and in spices and lay it in Joseph's tomb, they weep as they handle the casket in which the deity had dwelt. For there Satan had bruised his heel. 
The devil had let loose Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and the Jews and the Romans. But that is all, however. It is only his heel and not his head. For lo, the champion rises again. He had thought he had thrown a knockout punch, but Satan didn't do that. He just struck Jesus on the heel. And as painful as that was, that suffering is nothing compared to what Jesus did to Satan. Endless conflict, temporary defeat. Third, God says there will be eventual victory. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's look at those two phrases compared to each other. It's heel versus head, and it is striking versus crushing. When Jesus died on the cross, he delivered a crushing blow to Satan. I mean, who do you think won that battle? Heel wounds are painful, but no one survives a crushed head. The cross was God's death blow against Satan. It was the payback for the fall and everything else. And when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he utterly defeated Satan. To say it that way does raise a question. If Satan's been crushed, why does he still seem to be so alive and well 2,000 years later? We know he's alive and well on planet Earth. But how can that defeated being who was crushed by Christ exercise so much power today? Well, the answer is that at the cross, Satan was judged. His sentence was pronounced. But now he's kind of free on his own recognizance. There's none of that. But he's free to roam the earth, awaiting his final execution. It explains why Satan's destructive power on earth is going to grow even fiercer and more powerful the closer the coming of Christ is. In the end, he will be destroyed And all those who follow him will be destroyed. But he will not go quietly. Endless conflict, temporary defeat, eventual victory. So what does all that mean for us today? This is a real cheery message. Three things. Number one, the Christian life will always be a struggle. Let's just be honest. Struggle, it implies implies effort and sweat Exertion, difficulty. Why do you think Paul used the images that he did in the New Testament of a runner? The Christian's life's like a boxer, a wrestler, a soldier. The Christian life is not easy. It's hard work that demands your full commitment and the engagement of your soul. And until the day you die, you're going to face temptation. It's going to be hard. Sometimes you'll win, sometimes you'll lose. But don't get discouraged because it is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. We are at war. And life is hard and times are difficult and the enemy attacks on every side and we all face all this temptation. Salvation is free, but you don't get a free ride. Genesis 3.15 Christian life will always be a struggle. Second lesson, our victories will not come without wounds. If it pleased God to bruise his own son, how will we escape? 
the wounds of life. If Jesus suffered in doing the will of God, why won't we? At the cross, Satan struck a blow and wounded Christ in his heel. After the resurrection, what do you still see? You see the marks of that still present in his body. And you and I will struggle hard in this life, and in struggling, we'll be wounded. But don't despair because life is hard. Be thankful. You're like Jesus, and struggle on. If you feel like running away from your struggles, remember there's nowhere to run. If you leave the battlefield today, you'll, you'll wake up and remember and find yourself in another battlefield tomorrow. So you might as well stand and fight. To quote Philip Brooks, he is a foolish dreamer who expects an easy and bloodless victory for any noble plan. But yet success waits for, the very, for every good cause if it can only persevere and struggle on with its wounded heel. There's no victory without wounding, no progress without pain. Every flower laid on a Memorial Day grave is a symbol, a reminder, because we lay them on graves. And this truth should keep us humble because even when we finally win, we know that we had to shed our own blood to gain the victory. So don't boast so much. The coward who shrinks from the wounds and the boaster who forgets there are wounds They've misunderstood this text. Third lesson. God's plan of salvation is wrapped up in a person. In a person. First mention of the gospel, that first hint is there in Genesis 3. Jesus' name isn't in the text, but he's there. He is the offspring of Eve, of the woman, who would one day make his entrance in a most unlikely fashion. And as the centuries roll on, Satan kept winning victories and God kept raising up men and women to stand in opposition that there might be a godly line on earth. This verse, Genesis 3.15, is like the top, the wide top of a funnel. And when the promise is given, you can't imagine that the bottom of the funnel is the Lord Jesus Christ. The offspring of the woman simply means that, that he has to be a member of the human race. No animal was going to do this. No bull, no goat. It had to be human. He had to be human. And the bloodline is narrowed first to the descendants of Noah, then later to the descendants of Shem, later to one man, Abraham, to his son Isaac, to Isaac's son Jacob, to Jacob's son Joseph, eventually to David, the king. And what started with the whole human race ends down to rest upon the firstborn son of a virgin named Mary. When God wanted to crush Satan, he starts in a cave in Bethlehem. But let's be clear the end goal of the ministry of that one that begins in a cave is very clear. 
Think back to Genesis 3. Creation and the Garden of Eden were designed in a way for them to do what? Live in intimate relationship with God. He had planned it to be an intense relationship, a warm relationship. It was designed to be a living relationship that could grow as they look and explored creation. They could understand that the connection between the sun and the moon and the stars. They could see the universe and, and the many other universes all living in harmony together. God wanted a wonderful relationship for men and for women, for families to live with each other without sin. I mean, that was his purpose until Satan, this self-driven, ambitious, would-be God, led to this rebellion against him. You see, the simple reality is Jesus came to restore Genesis 1 and 2 and to undo Genesis 3. And he moved to reduce Satan from his ambitious, self-appointed throne. And he moved that we might take the place of honor, that we might, through humility, through a dependence that's desperate on Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, be restored to a right relationship with God. See, the story of Jesus had to begin with the manger. It had to include a cross. I mean, where else could it begin but with his own humility? Just in a cattle stall, stepping down from his throne to identify with us because he had to be one of us to reach one of us. He had to be with, with us to proclaim his love, to show us what God really looks like, what the love of God really looks like. Because God's plan, it's always been wrapped up in this person, Jesus Christ. But let me ask, where does the story of the ministry of Jesus end? It doesn't end at the tomb. It ends where? It ends on the Mount of Olives with a commission to his followers. You see, the goal of his ministry is not just to teach us how to live, but how to live his way in order that we might form in other people the desire to live his way. What begins in Bethlehem ends with a great commission. And the story of Jesus, the offspring of the woman, does not end until we grasp the importance of that commission, that we form in others what he has formed in us. Do you know this ultimate offspring of Eve? If you do, then this week's not just about you. How are you going to impact others? How are you going to pass the message along? Because this week we tell the story, the full story. Hopefully the devotionals will help us do that. But that which looked so hopeless in Genesis 3, that which looked so hopeless when Jesus hung on a cross, naked in the garden, naked on the cross. In those hopeless moments of life, God did the impossible. Bitten by a snake, look at the, at the serpent on the pole. 
asked to give up your only son? Look for the ram caught in the thicket. You've just sinned. Should I really obey the clear commands of God? You see, in these hopeless moments, God does the impossible. We're going to sing this song this week and next. It opens with, Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. But since when has impossible ever stopped God? Friday's disappointment becomes Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? Because you're asked to believe that a dusty promise made to a couple of sinners who knows how many millennia ago comes to fruition about 2,000 years ago on a cross. And that brings us eternal life. And now the life that he has formed in us, go, tell, form that in other people. That's the message of the ministry of Christ. That he who began this work in us, we then begin it in other people. We form in others the faith he formed in us, which quite frankly seems impossible. But our God is really good at impossible. Let's pray. Father, let us not forget that really the suffering and the agony, the, the struggle of the Christian life, yes, it works your good within us, but it also equips us to form that good work in other people. And so I ask that we would sense that this week, that we would look out for those relationships and those people with whom we can invest our lives because you have changed us. And yeah, even though the, the Christian life is difficult, it is so worth it because it gives us true hope and it gives us the reassurance that you can do the impossible. As you did with Adam and Eve, as you did with the death of Christ, so do in us. In Jesus' name, amen.